host for today's White Coat Story. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Maya Balakrishnan. Dr. Balakrishnan is a neonatologist, quality improvement specialist, and clinician educator at Tampa General Hospital. Dr. Balakrishnan attended Sri Ramachandra Dimad University, Chennai, Sri Ramachandra Medical College for medical school and an internship in internal medicine. Next, she did her residency in pediatrics at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Finally, she did her fellowship in neonatal perinatal medicine at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University. In this podcast, you'll hear Dr. Balakrishnan talk about the differences that she felt from going to medical school in India and practicing in the United States, her work as a neonatologist, as well as a quality improvement specialist, and the influence which her parents had on her journey to medicine and where she is now. Now, on to the podcast with Dr. Maya Balakrishnan, who prefers to just be called Maya. Maya, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. So, first question. In simple words, what type of medicine do you practice, and what does that type of doctor do? I am a neonatologist, which means that I'm trained as a pediatrician who specializes to take care of babies who are sick. And I'm pretty lucky. I get to go to a lot of birthday parties, and I get to see a lot of babies go home safely from the NICU or the neonatal ICU. I'm very fortunate that my career has expanded to focus on areas of healthcare quality. So I'm able to help other pediatricians at the University of South Florida where I work, um, and I help them to conduct quality improvement initiatives. I also help our primary affiliate hospital, um, Tampa General, work with our graduate medical education, so doctors in training, with collaborative QI initiatives, and I also help our state perinatal quality collaboratives with various multi-hospital maternal and infant healthcare initiatives. So I'm a doctor and I'm also a quality improvement specialist. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like you're involved in all sides of medicine. So what's it like taking care of babies mainly? Like how does that differ a lot from adults? Babies aren't aren't tiny humans. Um, And I guess the neonatologist is the person who gets to go to a baby's delivery if things aren't going the way that they're planned. So if a baby does well in a delivery, then the pediatrics team takes over and I hopefully don't see that baby again. But if the baby doesn't do well and needs some intensive care, then we head to the NICU or the neonatal ICU. Um, Oftentimes, our babies get admitted for things like prematurity, which means that every part of their body is immature in the way that it's developed or the way that it functions. So that can affect any organ in their body. It can affect their lungs, their hearts, their brain, their intestines, I mean, you name it, their whole body is is immature. And I get to watch them grow. Uh, There are other infants that get admitted to the intensive care unit who have just had a difficult delivery, and that's can mean any sort of thing. Those kinds of problems can range from, you know, a part of their body not being formed normally, like congenital heart disease or an intestinal atresia or a brain malformation. Or it can just be that they developed normally in their mom, but the delivery was very challenging for whatever reason, um, and they had difficulty transitioning to uh, from intrauterine life to being outside of their mom, and we see all those kinds of babies. Are you always present in the delivery room? 
I only work in a hospital setting now because I specialized, after I did my pediatrics training, I specialized just to take care of babies. And the types of babies that I take care of are only those babies who um, don't do well uh, after they're born. Um, once they get discharged from the, the hospital the first time after their birth, they usually don't come back to me. Um, they'll go to a different type of pediatrician. And so the obstetricians who take care of these high-risk moms um, they know to call me as a neonatologist. They call me and my team. I don't work by myself. Um, and we attend these deliveries to help them out. So I attend high-risk deliveries. Uh, my pediatric partners, the residents, the, the pediatricians in training, they usually attend normal deliveries. Um, but if in a normal delivery something unexpected happens, then I might get called to help out. So when did you decide that you wanted to become a neonatologist? I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a doctor. I think it was around elementary school. Being as focused and determined, I guess, as I am, I immersed myself in all things math and science. I was really thrilled to be in medical school, and I found that I'd really found my place when I became a neonatologist. Early on in my career, I was lucky because I held some administrative hospital positions, um, and I realized that I liked finding opportunities to improve healthcare quality, and I really liked using the scientific method. So I liked to systematically test interventions and find out what worked. So that kind of spilled over into my neonatology world and then to the, my state perinatal quality collaborative and hospital, um, the hospital arena as, it, as I expanded my quality improvement work. So when you first got into medical school, what was your first day like? So I actually am a foreign medical graduate. <laughs> um, I went to medical school in India, so I knew early on that I wanted to go into medicine. I was very focused. I was the salutatorian of my class. I got into colleges in the United States, but I really was interested in going straight to med school and not do undergrad if I didn't have to because I knew what I wanted. And so I went to medical school um, in Chennai at Sri Ramachandra Medical College um, and Research Institute, which is uh, affiliated with Harvard. And I had a very interesting experience there because India is very different in its cultural norms when compared to America. And so I walked into my first day of school, uh, a medical college, and I walked into a theater-style classroom with girls on one side of the room and boys on the other. <laughs> and that kind of, it was a, that kind of shock that was, it was just so different from anything I'd experienced in my American upbringing in school here. Was there any differences in what you learned in your uh, medical school in India from what you had to adapt to uh, practicing in America? That's a really good question. There are lots of differences. There's differences in the way that the way that we were educated, the way we were taught. So the, the way that tests are, are given or you're assessed as a, a student, that was different. And there was differences in my exposure to clinical skills because I had to pick up different a different language. I had to learn um, Tamil. I'm Malayalam. I'm from Kerala, so I speak Malayalam. Uh, so I learned Tamil. I had to get the help of a lot of my classmates to help me translate other dialects because a lot of the work that we did clinically was actually in, in a free hospital that our, our college supported. Um, so that was different, not being able to communicate as effectively as, as I was able to in America. It was different in the types of things that we saw. I mean, I did an internship in India before I came back to the United States, and I got awesome opportunities, these extraordinary experiences to work in places like a cholera clinic and a leprosy clinic, and um, I saw malaria, and I saw dengue fever, and I saw TB all over the place, things that 
we don't really see here in America. And so tropical medicine and community medicine, going to villages and working in free clinics there, it's a very different experience than it is in the United States where we have we live in a democratic society where we have a lot more opportunity and a lot more wealth that is dispersed more evenly throughout society than it is in India. Well, that is very interesting. And now that you are a doctor, what's your average day like? My average day is probably unlike many physicians' average days because my, my, my days are really quite unpredictable. It depends on if I'm working as a physician or if I'm working as a quality improvement specialist. If you want to know how, how I work when I'm a neonatologist, my day, it usually starts around 7 a.m. I go to the intensive care unit. I work in an academic medical center, so we have a lot of trainees that work with us, uh, pediatric residents, so people who are training to be pediatricians, but also neonatologists, so pediatricians who are training to become specialized as neonatologists, they're fellows. Um, I also have nurse practitioners that work with us. Um, so I go in and I regroup with my team. I see my patients around 9 to 12. A couple hours later, we hold multidisciplinary rounds. They're bedside rounds um, with a team. Everything I do is as part of a team. Um, my team is comprised generally of an attending, so me, a neonatology fellow, the pediatric resident, nurse practitioners who I mentioned. We have registered dietitians, bedside nurses, pharmacists, oftentimes a case manager and a social worker on rounds with us. So it is a gaggle of people. And we kind of go around each uh, room in the NICU. Every baby has their own individualized room, which is very fortunate for them and their families. We talk about each baby at their bedside. We communicate with any family members who might be present. We come up with goals for the day uh, for each baby every day, and we make sure that there aren't any questions. We, we make sure that we solicit feedback from all, all of our team members. That takes me to about noon. Um, we grab some lunch. We get through any tasks or follow-up items from rounds, consults, things like that. And then around 5 o'clock, we hand off to the night team. Um, during the day, we also manage the delivery call, admissions, transfers, any procedures that are happening in our babies, post-op care, um, if any of our babies went to surgery. Um, I do some teaching, uh, bedside and more formally, because I do work in an academic facility. Uh, if I'm on call, um, some of those calls go to 30 hours, um, so they'll go into the next day, whereas my role in, in quality improvement is very different, and I get to make my own schedule in the sense that I manage my own calendar, so I have meetings, I give presentations, I write papers, I act as a project manager, I'm a teacher, I do all of those things with the rest of my time. Wow, that sounds like an incredibly busy day. So how do you decompress when you're not working? I am fortunate to have a wonderful family to come home to. I spend a good amount of time with my kids and my husband and my very sweet COVID puppy. Uh, we do a lot of things outdoors. We're very active together. And fortunately, I live in Florida where weather is practically perfect all year round. What are some of the things that you like to do with your family and your dog? We we bike a lot, we scooter, we go to parks, we paddleboard, we go out to museums, we go to the zoo, normal family stuff. There's a lot of extended family around, so we have, you know, weekly family dinners and get-togethers, and life is good. Yeah, that's always nice to just spend some time with your family and, like, and yeah, just, like, separate yourself from work. I agree. So when you do go back to work, what's the most challenging part? I guess it depends on what part of my career you're talking about. So um, challenging as a neonatologist, that would probably be taking, be taking care of uh, a critically ill infant who isn't strong enough to maybe survive on their own or for whom medicine hasn't advanced enough to help them. Challenging as a teacher, 
might be trying to motivate trying to motivate a learner to learn from quote-unquote simple bread-and-butter neonatology cases, um, the ones that, that some people may consider not so fun because they're maybe just a little premature or have a little bit of issue with one, one part of their body um, rather than the critically ill patient who might be on a ventilator or on multiple medications or have a complex diagnosis. Um, I guess the idea that we can always learn from something if we look at a patient and we learn to see the opportunities that there are to improve care because there are always opportunities to improve care. Challenging as a quality improvement leader would probably be trying to convince people who haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, I guess, that improving quality of health care means more than just saving money or helping a hospital's reputation. It means improving each of the dimensions of healthcare quality, that, that being safety, effectiveness, patient-centeredness, timeliness, efficiency, and equity uh, for every patient every day. That's very important. What are some examples of how you do that as a quality control leader? A quality improvement quality leader? So we, we get to conduct yeah. a lot of quality improvement initiatives, and I'm very fortunate that I get to do it on different levels. So, again, I, I do it with my department, the pediatricians and the neonatologists I work with, um, and the learners in that, those environments. But I also work with learners itself. I'm the director of quality for the graduate medical education at USF. I'm also um, working at a hospital level with um, for hospital-wide problems, so outside of pediatric, adult world issues, um, hospital metrics. I also get to work in the perinatal quality collaborative um, arena, so I get to work with multiple hospitals dealing with the same maternal or infant health issue. And some of the things that we've worked on from a, a state collaborative level might be things like how to address substance use disorder or neonatal abstinence syndrome um, and how to do that, provide a high-quality standardized manner of caring for these mothers and infants across the state of Florida. Uh, from a hospital level, we address issues that might impact hospital metrics, things like um, sepsis, so infections, or heart failure. So providing comprehensive care to a patient from the, the entire the entire continuum of their care, from the outpatient world to the inpatient world to the emergency room, those, those whole, that whole um, spectrum of care that they might receive. We do a lot of that work with with our trainees, so the hospital and the graduate medical education work together on those issues a lot of times because trainees really are the frontline workforce that see a lot of those types of patients. Um, from a department level, we do things like improving um, the utilization of mother's own milk for babies, so getting more babies to drink mom's milk instead of formula um, because there are so many benefits to that. Or um, improving the time at, the, at delivery, standardizing that care so that tiny babies meet their their goals in the first hour of life, their golden hour. So there, there could be communication issues. So working on a debriefing process when an infant goes from the post from the post stop in the post stop scenario. We do like debriefing projects. So um, communication between anesthesia, surgery, and our team, um, as well as the nurses after an infant comes back from the operating room, um, just so that the, the care is optimized for a single patient. So there are different levels of quality improvement initiatives that can be done that scale in different ways, um, but it, it's all about helping improve care quality for patients every day. Yeah, of course. Well, we've heard you talk a lot about how about what your jobs are, and you seem incredibly passionate about them. But if there was one thing that you could change in how medicine is practiced in your field, what would it be? Improve how we communicate, how we communicate with colleagues, with team members, and with our patients, as well as their families. Communication is the leading cause of medical errors and harm to our patients. And, you know, that harmed patient could be me or you or your loved one. Um, I, I just think communication is it, it's so important, and we don't do it well.
Yeah, there's always room for improvement in that, in like in like anything that requires teamwork, and especially in practicing medicine, there are many specialties that all come together at once. I agree. Medicine is definitely a team sport. It is no longer a single provider that can manage everything. You're always on a team. Yeah. So let's go back into your past a little bit. How do you believe that your upbringing contributed to where you are today? I am the second of four kids born to Indian immigrants, so my father being a a doctor. um, And being of Indian descent, it's not terribly surprising that we as a family lived the Indian dream. All four of us became doctors of some sort. Um, But beyond the, the surface, my parents did teach me the importance of using our intelligence for the greater good, the value of service to others, and the fulfillment that comes from giving. So that mixed with my passion for science and my love of health, helping children be healthy, I think all of those things made medicine a common sense path for me to take. And I was just fortunate to know that early on. Can you go into some more of the things which your parents taught you about using your intelligence? Sure. But my parents taught me that it was more important to understand material rather than just just know it. It's not just about memorizing facts or numbers or, you know, it, it, it was really about understanding the depth behind something, understanding the why. You know, why does something work the way it does? Why is that the way to do things? Why do you explain to me why you feel that way uh, or how you perceive that? So uh, not just accepting things as they are, but understanding the mechanism behind it or the rationale behind it or another person's perspective and always striving to be better, to understand that there's always an opportunity to be better, that I am not the smartest or the brightest, but I am someone who can grow. I think that it, it wasn't about getting the trophy. It was about what I did to earn that trophy and knowing that I had to be humble when I, when I got that achievement because I, I didn't do it by myself. There was always a team around me. And I think that also came from being part of having siblings, having siblings who were high achievers. We were always part of a team. It sounds, that, it sounds like your parents installed, instilled like a curiosity within you that seemed to push you towards medicine. <laughs> that does. You phrased it much better than I did. <laughs> yes. They instilled a curiosity within me. That is that is very true. And, and of course, it led to science because um, that was what I was surrounded by. But they were not, uh, they did not force me to become a not and not by any stretch of the imagination. It was clearly something I wanted. So when you were growing up, did you have any other influences, maybe any other hobbies or something? I read a lot of books. I do enjoy reading still. I enjoy doing puzzles, whether it's a crossword puzzle or a jigsaw puzzle. I play tennis, as any Indian does. I, I, did a, I was a Bartonian dancer for quite some time. So I, I kept myself busy. I was in a lot of clubs in school. I, I was a part of many different types of teams um, and had different roles in those teams, whether it was president of my class or a member of a society. I kept myself busy in, in school. A lot of those same same hobbies I carry today. And keeping yourself busy is like perfect preparation for what you went on to do. It is. Uh, being an intensivist, it is definitely all about keeping yourself busy. Yeah. So did you have any other role models or something, or mentors even, to push you on, on the path that, you, that you're on today? I think that I I was very fortunate that I had a variety of mentors in my life. The things that that my mentors have in common are that I formed a genuine relationship with them. Um, So we had an understanding of who we each were, um, and it was not a selfish relationship. 
whether it was my fifth grade teacher or my favorite neonatologist or my favorite quality improvement guru, um, I think that we gave each other, our relationship gave each other something. It was symbiotic. I think that my mentors all believed in me and they they always made me strive to do more and helped me understand, even in my success, that there was opportunity for growth. Um, and I still keep in touch with each of those three people today, my fifth grade teacher, my favorite neonatologist, and my QI guru. And we have regular conversations, and they're wonderful people. What else did you want to know about them? Maybe about they may have taught you or some of the things that they may have helped you through. So my fifth grade teacher, who's um, who called me today, um, I think that one of the things that she taught me was that there is always hope and to always remain optimistic, to look at the good in any situation, even if it seemed to be dire. <laughs> um, I think my favorite neonatologist taught me the value of being rigorous in my thought. Um, and with neonatology, to be um, a good communicator with my family, because oftentimes, at least in, in my field, I am faced with communicating to a parent or with a parent or a loved one of an infant who was likely just born, who was critically ill. And oftentimes that type of communication brings about feelings of fear in a caregiver, a parent, anger, sadness, hysteria. I mean, there's a whole gamut of emotions that can seem scary. And I think oftentimes we as people, even as very empathetic people, we our first instinct may be to run away from, from that person who is expressing this type of emotion that is so strong and not wanting to, to necessarily deal with that. But what I've learned from my neonatologist mentor is that that's exactly when I need to step forward and reach out my hand and listen more openly and see more clearly um, and to help that caregiver or parent through this difficult thing that they're facing. That's not the time to walk away, but that's the time to walk towards them. I think that my QI mentor, he's profound, and he taught me um, the value of failure. And there's something he says. He says, you know, fail fast, fail often, and fail small. So when you try something, pilot it out in a small with a small group of people or a small number of tests and learn from that. And then either revise that test that you've done, that intervention you've put into play or ditch it completely because it didn't work or feed off the success and try something else to add on to it to make it better. So the, the idea of failing small, failing fast, failing often, falling forward, failing forward is very valuable in the quality improvement world. Do you feel that if you had met these people and learned these lessons earlier on in your life that you would have benefited from that? I think that we meet people for a reason and at a particular time for a purpose. And I think I would have learned from each of these different individuals in my life. I would have learned something. But I was on a path, and each of these people helped guide me at different points in my life when I most needed that those lessons to be given to me. And so I, I'm fortunate. I'm very happy that I, I didn't meet them earlier in my life. I'm, I'm very happy that I get to continue a relationship with each of them. Yeah. So if you were to have learned something as like a high school student, looking back now, what do you think that it should be? One would be to play sports. <laughs> I think that playing sports gave me a lot of insight. Um, it taught me a lot of important life lessons, like practice making us better and stronger and, and wiser. I think that I learned that being on a successful team meant acknowledging each person on a team and knowing what their strengths were and their weaknesses were and using their strengths so that we could all build upon them and, and 
and be more successful. I learned that communication in a team is very important to the success. And I learned that failing isn't necessarily a loss. It just helps you see opportunities. So one, be in all sorts of teams. They don't have to be sports teams, but be on all sorts of teams and play lots of different roles on the team that you're in, whether it's you know, the member of a team, the leader of a team, the naysayer of the team. I think another important skill or lesson to cultivate would be to learn how to communicate your thoughts and articulate them clearly and effectively. Practice the scientific method. It's a key concept in quality improvement. And be inquisitive. Ask why. Yeah, those are all very good advice. And being curious, that's the one that really stuck with me the most because you'll find out more about the world that way. Yeah, and about people's perspectives. I can't remember which philosopher said it, but it's, there was some thought. Um, it was something to the effect of, it's not what you look at, it's what you see. The lens that you see something through, where you learn. Yeah, definitely. So now that we've looked into the past and, and into the present, let's look in the future. Where do you see the medical industry or even your own field in 10 years? If you ask me about neonatology, I think that neonatology over the past few decades, it's really, it really has significantly advanced as a field. I think that the thing that we're going to see in neonatology is improved neurodevelopmental outcomes for premature infants. I think in the area of healthcare quality, we're going to start seeing a cultural shift in how people view quality. Um, I think that we're going to see that patient voices are important, and I think they will be more heard than they have been in the past. And I think, especially with COVID, that we've seen a lot of inequity in healthcare. And I think there are people out there that are going to find ways to lessen the inequalities so that, or inequities so that we serve those people who kind of like that um, that picture where they have what does equality look like and what does equity look like with the kids looking over a fence, then kids getting a stool, and then where everyone had the same stool and then getting kids getting the stools that they needed to see, see over the fence to watch the basketball game, the baseball game. And then there was freedom where, you know, the fence was gone and everyone could see clearly what was there. I don't know if you've seen that picture. Have you seen that picture? I don't describe it well. I don't think I have, but I do get the idea. You should Google it. Yeah, you should Google that picture. It's used a lot, but I think that um, inequity, I think people are going to, to learn how to address it and to lessen it. Yeah, addressing inequity, that is a big issue. And as you said, it's, it's still everywhere, and the medical field is no exception. I agree. So final question, what is something that you would recommend to children aspiring to be doctors? That there are many paths to becoming a doctor, and there are many types of doctors. There are many fields of medicine. So open your eyes and your minds to the possibilities that surround you. Play games, be on a team, and learn from each experience. All right. Well, that was very good advice and a great summary of the podcast in general. Thank you so much. I learned a lot about a new field and heard a lot of great advice. Thank you very much for your time.